Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Welcome to an incredibly special episode of the BIOS podcast. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Harvey Lodish professor at MIT and founding member of the Whitehead Institute to the show. Harvey, thank you once again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Drew Shar and special guest, Don Hout, CEO of Carmine Therapeutics. Don, can you kick things off by giving our listeners a brief background on yourself and Carmine? Sure. Thanks a lot, Chris. Really delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm Don Hout. I'm the CEO of Carmine. I started out 20-some years ago after finishing my PhD in molecular biology, in which I worked on parvoviruses, including AAV. I actually decided to go to business school after that. I went to business school instead of a long postdoc and then went into consulting and for the past 20-some years have been in biotech and medtech companies. Most recently before Carmi and I was kind of like coming back home, I was working with AAV again as the chief business officer at Ask Bio, which of course we sold to Bayer. And then I joined Carmi, where I'm delighted to say, I think we've got a platform here that solves a lot of the problems of modern gene therapy. I mean, we use extracellular vesicles to deliver DNA and or RNA to target cells in the body. And it really works well. We can deliver very, very large DNAs, over 30 KB, which is something almost unique in the field. Something else that's probably unique in the field is we can multiplex. So we can deliver multiple DNAs loaded into the same EV at the same time, which allows us to do really, really nifty things. And we get terrific transgene expression. We get you know very high amplitude, very long duration transgene expression. We're working right now on programs in ophthalmology, specifically Stargard disease and macular degeneration. And then we're also working in cystic fibrosis as well. I was delighted to join the company partially because Harvey is one of the founders of it and really, really happy to be here talking about that today. Thank you, Don, for that intro of yourself and Carmen. We're excited to dive in deeper. But before we do, Harvey, can you rewind the clock and please share more about your background and your storied career with us? Well, sure. In brief, I was a graduate student at the Rockefeller University, worked on RNA bacteriophage with Norton Zinder. I was a postdoc with Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner at the famous MRC Laboratory for Molecular Biology in Cambridge, England. And since 1968, I've been on the faculty at MIT. Seems incredible, but I'm in my 55th year still on the active faculty research in a number of areas, but perhaps most relevant for this discussion, I've been in biotech for about 45 years, going back to the founding of Genzyme and several other companies in the 80s, delighted to be part of Carmine, which was started by two of my students, a married couple in Xi Jihai, Min, a graduate student in my lab, Jihai from China as a postdoc, and have several other companies in Boston. 
talk more later, but very excited about Carmine in particular. And we can understand why. But before we dive deeper into your research and into Carmine, help our audience get a grasp of across the many experiences with your career, Harvey, what has been your North Star? The common thread that's tied such incredible work together. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it has to do with red blood spells. It actually started over 60 years ago when I was in 10th grade. And for three summers, I worked in a laboratory at what was then Western Reserve University Medical School, studying potassium transport in red blood cells. And at the time, we knew nothing about cell membranes. We had no idea why potassium accumulated inside cells and sodium was excluded from cells. We knew nothing about cell membranes. My graduate work and postdoc work were in other areas, translational control of protein synthesis. But beginning around oh, 1970, started working on the biogenesis of membranes and membrane proteins, first using the vesicular stomatitis virus glycoprotein, worked out the ER to Golgi to plasma membrane path of membrane glycoproteins. Some of the work was done, much of the work was done by James Rothman, a postdoc, one of my two postdocs to go on and win the Nobel Prize, actually using the technology he helped develop in my lab. But in the 80s, when cloning became possible, we isolated clones for two red cell membrane proteins, the glucose transporter and the anion exchange protein, and a liver receptor for galactose terminal glycoproteins, and then went on to clone using a novel technology that we developed, expression cloning the erythropoietin receptor, the receptor for the hormone that drives red cell production. And that in our work on cloning the receptors for the TGF-beta family launched a whole series of investigations by myself and my postdocs into the cell signaling pathways. And more recently, we followed up on the role of microRNAs in hematopoiesis, red cells in particular, long non-coding RNAs, first in red cells, then more generally. So we've used red blood cells really as a launching point for many, many types of investigations. And several of them led to biotech companies, including Carmine, because Zhihai, when he was in my lab, developed some earlier technologies for using red cells to introduce proteins and other molecules into humans. And on his own, he showed with men that vesicles prepared from red blood cells could be used as delivery vehicles for DNA and RNA. And that, of course, is the basis of carmine. So I've been working and studying with red cells since 1958. And an incredible journey it has been. To start diving deeper into the topic and talk about integrating and applying this molecular cell biology, Drew, please take it away. Well, molecular cell biology also happens to be the title of a book that I've devoted much of my adult life to. The ninth edition uh, was published just about a year and a half ago, and it's been in 14 languages, particularly proud of the translation into the Vietnamese language, Turkish, Korean, Chinese, all of the European languages. First two editions I did with David Baltimore and James Darnell at Rockefeller. 
And then I took over running the book. And that was a real privilege because I would work closely with my colleague authors and we would have discussions, you know, what's important in science that we should include? What's old and needs to be removed or de-emphasized from the editions? You know, a wonderful way of keeping up with advances in very diverse areas of cell biology and molecular biology that in turn led to insights in our own research and into some of the companies that I've started. So I've always felt, besides the focus of my own lab, taking a very, very broad view of developments in science and increasingly thinking through how these could be used in human therapies. Uh, it's an incredible mindset, Harvey. And I know that I speak for Drew myself and likely so many listening to our conversation today when I say that we've long been readers of your book and truly appreciate the incredible work you've put in. And also at the same time, recognizing your name on the cover, it's truly an honor to be speaking with you this morning. So thank you again for joining us. Well, let me tell you the one event that really has driven me for the past 20 years, which dates from the founding of Genzyme. And I was very active with the company and helped them develop their first therapeutic product, Serozyme, which is a recombinant protein. It's an enzyme replacement for a fairly devastating genetic disease called Gaucher disease. And work with the company in the late 80s to basically express it in recombinant cells, modify the sugar so it was targeted to macrophages and so forth. But it hit home a number of years later, 2002, when our oldest daughter was pregnant. Gaucher, like many rare diseases, is abundant in certain ethnic groups, in this case, descendants of Eastern European Jews. And being of that ethnicity, our daughter and her husband were given DNA tests, which showed that they were carriers of Gaucher, which meant the child she was carrying has had a one in four chance of developing the disease. My daughter had amniocentesis done, had me take the call from the genetic counselor who said, you know, Dr. Lodish, I'm really sorry, but the child your daughter is carrying has Gaucher. I could tell from the alleles that she told me that it was probably the non-lethal form and the form that could be treated with the drug I helped develop. And to jump ahead, Andrew is now 20. He has been monitored at Boston Children's Hospital since before his birth. He's been on the Genzyme drug since he was 10 years old when he started his growth spurt. And he's never been ill from Gaucher a day in his life. And that's really what drives me and really everyone else who's in biotech. Yes, we can talk about businesses and finance and venture capital and so forth. But in the end, it's developing therapies for unmet medical needs and using every bit of the science that is at our disposal to develop these therapies. And this occasionally does get lost in all the business pages of the newspapers. So I always emphasize that when I talk about biotech, because that's the driving force. I mean, another 
company that I'm involved with, I set up with two men who are not scientists, but who have daughters with Dravet disease, a devastating childhood epilepsy, haploinsufficient genetics disorder. We're developing gene therapy treatments for that and related diseases. And again, you know, I have seen the two girls with Dravet. I'm on the board of Children's Hospital and have seen kids with devastating diseases, sickle cell disease, who have been treated by the gene therapies that were done there. So again, that's really the motivation. And I have to say that is what gives me the most satisfaction of the work that we've all been doing. I must say, Harvey, from an inspiration standpoint, that is the core driver of so many amazing people as your as yourself and it's so inspiring to hear from your own words the personal aspect and the impact factor that you've been able to have on your own background and your own career and just so excited to continue the conversation and bring up more learnings within those veins continuing on speaking about your own background and your own research harvey the evolution of your lab focus had so many different amazing impacts and and so many different focuses throughout the year. You you even mentioned in a previous podcast, your lab would even pivot every five to 10 years, a different direction to new and amazing science and and new different ways that you were studying and approaching red cells. I found this fascinating and I wanted to dive in first and say, given the breadth of applications, your research enabled Really, just from a broad perspective, how did you and your lab select the projects to prioritize that were on this impact factor that led you to feel that North Star of, I want to impact patients? Well, two things to summarize, and then I'll go into the details. I've trained over 200 students and postdocs. Two have Nobel Prizes, 10 are in the National Academy. And I've always had the philosophy of, attracting to my lab absolutely top scientists who can think for themselves and in many cases bring their own problems to solve. 30-some of my trainees have been medical doctors, many but not all fellows in one of the subspecialty programs at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital. So they bring in the problems, and then we try to solve them. For instance, in the 80s, a postdoc Alan DeAndrea came to my lab, an MD on the faculty at uh, Children's Hospital, Dana-Farber. And he came to my lab to do a different set of experiments, but came to me one day and said, you know, we really need to understand erythropoietin signaling. And he wanted to clone the erythropoietin receptor. Now, we didn't know how to do it, but we rather quickly came up with the idea of expression cloning. We recruited a colleague, Gordon Wong, who was then at Genetics Institute, who had some experience with vector production. And Alan and Gordon went to work developing the technology to clone by functional expression, that is, clone a protein that, when expressed in a cultured cell line enable that cell to bind erythropoietin, and erythropoietin was radioiodinated. So it was a very complicated process. We had no idea it was going to work. It was risky, but the best of my postdocs and students have taken on risky projects. 
So that's point one. Point two is I never compete with my former postdocs. And I've always had a rule, I call it the one-year rule, but basically when they're gonna leave the lab, they'll tell me what they're going to work on for the next year, year and a half or whatever. And that's their problem. That's their project. I never compete with them. And that happened with the erythropoietin receptor. Alan continued to work on it. Then he became very interested in genetic diseases having to do with DNA repair, Franconi's anemia, and went on his own track. He's, of course, in the National Academy of Sciences and Medicine. My lab continued to work on the erythropoietin receptor, and it goes on. I mean, similarly, when a graduate student, Herb Lynn, in my lab cloned the TGF-beta receptor, he actually did it with a postdoc in Bob Weinberg's lab, Shofang Wang. And as it happened, neither Bob nor I knew they were actually working on the project until they came up with the clone. You see, they felt free enough to do that. And the only disagreement was each of them thought the other should be the first author in the first cell paper, you see. And that led to a whole line of work in my lab and in Bob's lab because of the role of TGF-beta in, in cancer biology. It attracted to my lab a whole different group of postdocs who were interested in cell signaling, particularly in cancer, the way it can both be uh, anti-proliferation and later post-proliferation triggering the epithelial mesenchymal transition and so forth. And many of my postdocs from that have gone on to exceptional careers studying TGF-beta. So I've always had that philosophy and I find it very stimulating. Lab meetings, there were always MDs there who could explain to the PhDs the medical importance and uh, PhDs and the graduate students could explain to the medical doctors how one goes about doing these experiments and it worked very well. So, you know, when I look back at my career, yeah, I'm proud of the experiments and the genes and so forth, but I'm really prouder of the 200 or so students and postdocs that have gone on to their own illustrious careers. Well spoken, Harvey. And I think it's amazing when you look at the perspective of the individuals that you've been able to mentor and bring together. Like you said, the 200, two of them being Nobel Prize winners later in life from your, from your own postdocs, um, along with eight members of the National Academy of Sciences. The inspiration, the draw and attraction to, to science, as you mentioned, I think is really inspiring for individuals that are looking to start a flywheel of innovation on their own. And we're so excited to hear more about mentorship and bringing in that next generation in a little bit. As we're on this vein of PI and research guidance, as kind of you you started and been able to mentor so many of these individuals, for much of your own research that had been fundamental to emerging fields when we're speaking about red cells, when we're speaking about all the future work that had led over your five-decade career, pushing almost six, do you have advice for PIs that are currently pursuing the cutting edge of research that are seeking to build their own form, their own flywheel of innovation in their own lab? You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a slide Bruce Alberts once showed, which was a circle divided into dozens of black and white sectors. 
you know, and he would point out that 95% of science is done in 50% of the interesting fields. There are many unmet medical needs. There are many things about human disease, human development, human metabolism that we don't understand. It's very easy to continue a line of research well past the time when it actually yields what I might call useful but important information. You know, the third or fourth protein in a pathway, as opposed to thinking, you know, what are important problems? I mean, to give you a specific example, much of my recent work, particularly in biotech, is done with rare diseases. And there are about 7,000 of them. We only understand a small fraction where the gene has been cloned. There are many that are abundant in ethnic groups in poor, low, and middle-income countries about which we know nothing. I mean, I can show you pedigrees of genetic diseases from countries like Vietnam or Pakistan, which are unknown. And these become interesting really for two reasons. One is the fairly obvious one that understanding the genetic basis of the disease can lead to certainly prenatal testing. It can lead in some cases to the development of a gene therapy or a drug cure and so forth. But also, and we tend to forget it, uh, it can lead to fundamental biological insights. In other words, what we really want as a community is to understand the function of all 20,000 human genes. And yeah, you can knock them out in cultured cells, and people do that all the time and use it to understand certain pathways. But as a complement, identifying human mutations and usual populations, I, you know, I'm thinking is one fairly well-known example, the mutations in certain families in Pakistan where the people felt absolutely no pain. You know, in one, in one famous case, a, a young man killed himself by jumping off, you know, a high from, from a garage because he had no pain when he landed. And that has led to certain insights into developing therapies for human pain. So there's an awful lot to be done. And part of what I try to do now is encourage people to go into fields like that, you see, and to begin thinking about it, using as an example, as it were, the incredible developments in gene therapies for sickle cell disease basically a disease which was grossly underfunded and understudied for many, many years and has now become center stage because of the new technologies. And that can be extended to a whole lot of genes and proteins. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic call to arms to, to researchers seeking to get into the next frontier of, of, of research and especially these rare and unmatched genetic diseases. It's, it's certainly something that needs to be addressed. It is, and it's especially relevant for many for many of our students who come from these countries yeah. or young people who've grown up in this country who want to help underserved populations. There are many, many opportunities there. Amazing. And as we're continuing on here, Harvey, I, I want to take a quick halftime here in a way. We like to ask a few rapid fire questions from your own perspective um, as we're getting on to our next topic here. 
one in particular I wanted to start with is in your career, Harvey, you've had the pleasure of both witnessing and having a direct hand in building Kendall Square into what it is today. And it's it's often said that people overestimate what they can do in a few months and, and really underestimate what they can do in a few years. Never mind over a lifetime. Yeah. Thinking back, how does this evolution influence your views on the future of innovation? And in your mind, how does that mentality, what does that give you in, in your mind of what's coming next? Well, first of all, I did not have, nor did anyone, really have a direct hand in building Kendall Square. It was really a confluence of things in the late 70s and early 80s. It was to become a DNA revolution where one could isolate the gene for disease-related proteins and then make them in large amounts. Insulin clotting factors, DNA, glucosuribrosidase for Gaucher disease and so forth. So there was a technology revolution that really started the biotech revolution because all of the early companies, the Biogens, the Genzymes, the Genentex, their first products were recombinant proteins. So it was the development of technologies. It was faculty members who became entrepreneurs. I was not an entrepreneur before the late 70s. I did have a role model. Some of you may know the name Carl Gerasi, a famous organic chemist at Stanford. He and I happened to go both to Kenyon College. And in the summer of 1961, I worked, before my last year at Kenyon, I worked in his lab. He developed in the 80s a set of chemical syntheses, starting from a compound in a Mexican tree that led to the oral contraceptive. And while I was in his lab, he ran Syntex, a company on Sand Hill Road just outside of the Stanford campus, and was developing the oral contraceptive. He is known as the father of the birth control bill. And that stuck with me for a long time. And when a new set of technologies came along, you know, we were prepared for it. That was the, the founding of Genzyme. But the other two things that led to it, one is that there was empty space next to the MIT campus, the so-called Kendall Square area. And the fact that a number of my faculty colleagues and colleagues at Harvard became entrepreneurs, part of the culture, and helped really start the company. So, you know, that's true of Biogen, which is Wally Gilbert, Phil Sharp, a number of others. That's true of Genzyme. I had seven colleagues, Chris Walsh, Tommy Sinsky, Cho Kyun Ra, Graham Walker. I can go on. You see Charlie Cooney. All of us from diverse backgrounds, but we worked together to put a company together. So it was organic. It's not that anybody said, let's build Kendall Square. And for the next decade, it kind of moseyed along. But then the human genome came along in 2000. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just, you know, 200 genes that we had cloned laboriously, but we had all 20,000 laid out in front of us. Thank you, Eric Lander. And that spurned the next stage in the revolution where companies were formed to treat all manner of diseases, 
And that really led to Kendall Square. At that point, the investors became aware of what was going on. And many, many companies started. And then, and importantly, the large companies recognized that that's where the innovation was. The large pharmas all missed proteins as therapeutics. All the proteins as therapeutics were developed in small, innovative companies directly out of Harvard, MIT, or, or Stanford, you see. And it was only much later that the big guys came. We have all 18 of the large multinational pharmaceuticals in some way in Boston because they realized where innovation comes from. So it was really organic building Kendall Square, not any single person or even group of people that led to it, but it was the confluence of all of these activities. In geography, the area around MIT was a mess. Ancient, you know, manufacturing companies, chocolate manufacturers, and so forth. And there was plenty of room. So when I lecture on this, I show a map of MIT. It was one actually drawn originally by Phil Sharp for a, a science article. And I've elaborated on it, but it basically shows how dependent physically Kendall Square is on MIT. And, you know, location and, and, and academic capital is, is certainly, it's amazing to hear from your own perspective, Harvey, the building blocks as to what happened and how Kendall was formed today. Continuing on that vein of evolution and kind of looking towards the next decade here, we're currently building a new series known as Bios Impossible, which truly seeks to bring together some of the world's most leading experts within academia and industry to debate and predict how to approach life science's most challenging issues or the impossible challenges, if you will. As someone who's seen the ecosystem evolve, I mean, from your own words in previous podcasts, you know, knowing Kendall Square as Gene Town, right, before, before it even was Kendall Square, what were the impossible problems that you faced within your own academic career? And what's your view on facing today's impossible problems that might elude current researchers? Well, in my own case, as that of virtually all of my academic colleagues, we had absolutely no knowledge of business or business technologies. Many of us, like myself, went into academics because we were very nervous of working. We didn't want to work in pharmaceutical companies, which was really the only other option when my generation got our degrees. There is and always has been a huge communication problem. Yet what I've learned over the years is the successful companies have leaders, if they're not trained in science, who are quick to understand the science. Someone like Henry Tremere, who took over Genzyme, he had eight of us, all outstanding scientists in our own disciplines, but it was Henry who had the vision of building a company on rare diseases, because he understood, and we didn't, that one could build a profitable company on drugs for these unmet medical needs. And that is continuing. That is why with Andrew Lowe, what was it, six years ago, we started teaching this class at MIT called the Science and Business of Biotechnology which I have to say of all the classes, the many classes I've taught at MIT, this is the most fascinating. It's the only class at MIT that spans the Sloan School, the business, the management school, 
and the schools of science and engineering. So currently we have, what, 70 students, half are MBAs who want to learn the underlying science and engineering of biotech, and half are PhD students in biology, chemical engineering, electrical engineering, you name it. And we work together. And part of it is to get them talking to each other. And in the middle of the course, they will form groups of four or five and write a business plan for a biotech company in which both the science and the finances and et cetera are all covered. And they will present them to a group of VCs. That's the kind of interactions we need to develop. Doing it at the graduate level, we have found is quite a good ways to start. I mean, just as an example, next week, I will talk about oligonucleotide therapies, chemically modified oligonucleotides as splicing modifiers as uh, antisense nucleotides. And then following me, John Maragonori, who of course built El Nylum, will talk to the class for an hour about building a company on antisense oligonucleotides based on his wonderful uh, historic uh, piece in, in Nature Biotechnology. You know, similarly this afternoon, I'm gonna talk on sickle cell gene therapies. And in two weeks, Nick Leshley's coming to the class, you see. So it's something I'm able to do with colleagues to foster this kind of interaction, which I feel historically has been incredibly important in building the biotech companies and the biotech ecosystem, the Kendall Square that we have today. That is, you have people who can talk to people in other fields. Interdisciplinary perspective is, is really fascinating, and I appreciate the insight, Arvi. I want to move on to our, our next topic here, focusing in on academic entrepreneurship, with the first question from Don here. Thanks, Drew. So, Harvey, you know, it's no surprise that with all the research and, and good work that's come out of your lab, some of the greatest entrepreneurial academic spin-outs in the world have, have come out of there as well. What initiated yeah. this spark in you, and how do you continue to cultivate that in your lab and with the, you know, with the students you're currently teaching? Well, you know, as I said, it was really the opportunity it's an interesting history because I, like many of my colleagues, was offered millions of dollars by investors to start biotech companies. This was in the 70s. And we decided then that we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. So eight of us formed a professional consulting company called BIA, Bioinformation Associates. And we literally traveled the world consulting multinational corporations. For instance, Five of us spent a wonderful week in Paris with the food conglomerate. They were asking us, and they took us to these sites, whether biotechnology would impact the bottled water industry or the pasta industry or Stella Artois beer, etc. And the answer was no, but they paid handsomely for it. And I'm abbreviating the story, but this was the group that led to Genzyme. That is, this group, BIA, was retained by Sherry Snyder, an investor who was putting together a biotech company and asked us to evaluate his potential scientific advisory board. And it actually fell to me to read the CDs of these people on a bus from Woods Hole to Boston. And when I got off the bus, I, I called Sherry and I said, look, 
you know, this is a good group. This is a B-plus group, but I think you can do better. And he replied, well, would the eight of you become the SAB of Genzyme? And I said, let me talk to my colleagues. And that was Genzyme, you see. And the interdisciplinary nature of us was very important because, as I said, the first Genzyme product, well, it, it, there, were, there were small molecules that came out of Genzyme, but the first real product was hyaluronic acid, where Graham Walker, a geneticist, played a key role. And then serazine, which uh, a number of us played key roles because it was a recombinant protein and we needed people like Charlie Cuny and, and Cho Kyun Ra and Tony Sinsky who knew how to make and purify large amounts of proteins. So that was really the beginning of it. And, you know, I mean, carnine has a similar start, you know. Oh, yeah. Right people in Hong Kong develop what looked like a nice set of delivery vehicles. And uh, we took it, you know, far beyond what they could do in their own academic labs and are building it to a real therapy. So the parallelism keeps going on. Again, with amazing companies, there's always parallels and there's always new and amazing intersections and interactions. It's great to see the the background of Genzyme and, and what it had become today, even before Sanofi as a, the third largest biotech company in the in the world. Oh, it, it was once the largest employer in Massachusetts with yeah. 11,000 people. Unbelievably fascinating. And the impact in rare diseases and so many other therapies that it's been able to touch and has been truly inspiring and fascinating for its growth. And beyond Genzyme, Harvey, you've, you've founded numerous other companies that have generated significant patient impact including Millennium and Rubius Therapeutics, and most recently Carmine, as you mentioned. As a serial entrepreneur, you know, really, how do you think about translating technologies from academia, and how has that evolved from your own perspective? Well, I've learned to look at these things very critically. More specifically, when I headed the advisory board of the Mass Life Sciences Center, this is during uh, the time Deval Patrick was governor, we had the accelerator program which would give a million dollars to start up companies as a forgivable loan, really to get over some hurdle so that they could begin raising venture money. They needed a certain amount of money to get into the program. And each cycle twice a year, we would get upwards of 30 applications. And we would only fund three or four. Sometimes we were under budget. And what we all learned is that many of these companies never should have gotten started, that there were flaws in the underlying science. It was going to be the fourth technology, or it was going to be in a field where there are already quite successful biotherapeutics, or more frequently, the founders had no idea how to develop it into a business. The few that we funded have done very well. We know this because if the company raised $21 million, they had to pay back the loan. And at last count, over half the companies paid back the loan. So we were doing quite well, but the lesson there is important. You have to be very critical. And of course, VCs tell me, you know, they'll fund one or 2% of the ideas that come to them. So a lot of what we've learned is to think through both the science and the development of the therapy, try to anticipate what the obstacles are going to be, 
many cases, of course, you can't. But to try to at least think through what it will realistically take to get something into a human being. And people often take clinical trials very casually, but I've seen them, I've been parts of them. And when you inject something brand new for the first time into a human, you got to really know what you're doing. This is not a trivial matter. And that responsibility certainly carries weight, as you said. And I think those are some very strong words and very strong advice to PIs out there starting their own culture and their own forms of entrepreneurship and startups coming out of academia. I want to save some time here to discuss some more of your startups. More recently, Carmine. Carmine Therapeutics is currently developing, as you mentioned, new class of gene therapies that are based on red blood cell extracellular vesicles. While we have you both on the line here, could you please tell us more about the journey of Carmine and from conception to research to spin out and a little more information to start here? Well, I can start because I know Min's career as a postdoc. She was my graduate student. She worked with Judy Lieberman, a professor at Boston Children's and Harvard, on exosomes, these small vesicles that move RNAs from one cell to another. And much of her work was showing how these can communicate with cancer cells, certain tumor cells, and bring genetic information into them. And on her own, in her own lab, first at the City University in Hong Kong, now at National University in Singapore, she was looking for ways of making better exosomes, as it were. The ones she had studied were made by blubbing off cultured cells. And of course, they were very inhomogeneous and contained a lot of nucleic acids and proteins. They were not pure by any means, and they certainly weren't homogeneous. And she had the vision of making membrane vesicles from red cells, which are very homogeneous and can be purified and have no natural nucleic acids in them, and published a paper back in 2019, showing that she could incorporate RNAs into these and, as with exosomes, deliver them to cells, including cells in the body, but showing that these were much, much more homogeneous than any of the exosomes. And she was working with a venture group in Singapore, but also called me. And, you know, would, would I be interested uh, Min and Jihai had little idea of what biotech was about. And I agreed. I immediately saw the potential of it and decided to sign on. So I was doing it really to help two of my former students and licensed everything to the company that became Carmine, which then developed it for DNA biotherapeutics. And Min continues to do a lot of work more in the cancer field in her lab using these to treat potentially various types of cancer. And as you heard, Carmine is focusing much more on DNA gene therapies for a whole variety of unmet medical needs, you know, cystic fibrosis being one. Don, you may want to take it from here because you built the company. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you. I mean, I think the company was in the process of being built and I came in and stood on everyone's shoulders. It's really a fascinating technology. I think it answers a lot of the unanswered questions from some of the other gene therapies, because I think we see a lot of really interesting possibilities with it. I mean, first, we know, as opposed to things like viral gene therapies, that we can redose. 
And now with the new evidence coming out that looks like a lot of lipid nanoparticles may be causing some immune reactions as well, we may be one of the only carriers in the whole gene therapy space that can redose. So when you combine that with our ability to carry enormous payloads, the fact that we're using a much more natural form of carrier for transfer than viruses or lipid nanoparticles, which of course are completely synthetic, we believe we're going to have a much broader therapeutic window because we just don't see the kind of inflammation that's caused by a lot of those other things. And as Harvey said, I mean, you know, right now we're focused on rare diseases, but there is potential in this for a lot of different indications, not just rare diseases, oncology, as Harvey mentioned before. I mean, really, this, we believe, is a platform that has broad applicability across a lot of different spaces. I think it's amazing to hear from both your own perspectives on the current background, but also the future of Carmine and how this journey, if it's fully realized within the world, the true impact that it could have on patients. And as we're seeing the face of delivery changing and, and you know the current increase in gene therapies and the ever present need for it. It's amazing. We're excited to see and cheer Carmine on from the sidelines. Harvey, to wrap things up here as one final question, you mentioned so much of the inspiring touch and association that you've had on students and folks that you've had to mentor over your course of your career. And from this time, your lab closed in 2020. And while you have many amazing stories ahead, we'd love to look back for a minute. Uh, for someone who has had such an incredible career and who has influenced so many decisions and phenomenal mentees, I'm curious what you think about legacy as a wrap-up question. <laughs> how, how do you recommend scientists within the next generation think about their own careers, their own legacies, and their impact themselves that they want to have on this own world and their own careers? My legacy is really the students that I've trained and mentored. And, you know, I've been teaching biotech for 40 years, you know, encouraging generations of young people to go and work in biotech companies at all areas. What I've come to realize is I've done my job too well. I'm encouraging now many of the most outstanding students, postdocs that I encounter in these classes that I teach and interns in companies. I encourage them to have academic careers where you can do both things. You can have your own lab research in some area of fundamental or applied science. You can mentor generations of students, many of whom will go off and work in industry. And you can also do as I have done and many, many of my colleagues have done, which is oversee the founding and the development of biotech companies. So, I think, and others have commented on this, I think we've put down academic careers in biotechnology a little bit too much. And I think we need to reinvigorate that as a wonderful career opportunity where, as I have done, young people can train the next generation and the next generations of leaders in biotech because as I've tried to emphasize, pretty much everything that we do in biotech stems ultimately from academic discoveries, 
basic scientists who simply follow their own curiosity and investigation as, as I have done. So again, academics will continue to play a key role in this. Fantastic way to wrap up this absolutely amazing episode. Thank you once again, Harvey. Thank you, Don, for an awe-inspiring and amazing episode. We're very grateful for your time and looking forward to have you back on the show soon. Again, thank you for initiating this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been delightful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.